Well, good morning, and greetings to each of you in the Master's name this morning. It's always good to, at least for me, to stand in front of a congregation where I see a lot of familiar faces. And uh, we felt welcomed back again this morning. We've always felt welcome here, and I want to bless you for that. Um, It is good to know that we're with friends, with brothers and sisters in Christ. For a message this morning, I'll give you just a little bit of background. At Mabel Chapel, we went through the book Church Matters as a study. Um, started around the time that COVID started, and we worked our way through the book. Um, and as we came to the end of that study, I got a request from the congregation to give some practical instruction about roles in the body of the church. And uh, as I was going through that series of messages, one of the things that was rolling through my mind was, so how are we going to get this done? How are we going to actually fulfill the roles that God has given us to fulfill? And the message, at least a version of the message that I'm sharing this morning, is part of that, um, part of what I brought as the concluding message to that um, series on roles in the body. And I'll just say at the beginning that this message I struggled with it this week because it feels like um, by the grace of God this morning, I hope you can draw something from it. Um, I'm going to move fairly rapidly through some things to give you some background, and then I want to focus in on the, the last part of the message. The title of the message this morning is Pressure Points. And we live in a a world where there are pressures that are applied to us by the world around us, by the environment that we live in. And they influence the spiritual condition of the church. It's kind of somewhat the idea of Romans 12 where it says, be not conformed to this world. That has the idea of being pressed from the outside. And so there's, there's these pressures that are on us because of the environment we lived in, live in. And we talked about that just a little bit in the men's Sunday school class this morning. But I submit to you this morning that the greatest need in Anabaptist circles in America is for spiritual maturity, for people to move to spiritual maturity. And it's in spiritual maturity that we're going to, as, as bodies, as, as communities of believers, we're going to live out the things that God wants us to live out. And I don't say that because, I, I don't share that because of the church here specifically. You notice that I said Anabaptist in America. I'm talking about a broad spectrum of people. I'm talking about people from the old order communities to people in circles like BMA and so on. The greatest need is for spiritual maturity. 
Hebrews 12 tells us that God brings discipline into our lives to make us more like himself. And so his goal with bringing things to us is to bring about our holiness, to make us like he is. But we live in a society in our world that's very easy for us to avoid the things that are difficult. Is it possible that we're avoiding the very things that God wants to use for our good if we avoid the things in life that are difficult? There's three pressures that move the world. And I'm going to give you six pressures. Three of them move the world. Three of them move the church. Maybe you could add more. They all begin with the letter P. That's to help you remember them. So the title of the message is Pressure Points, and here's six pressure point words. Three of them that move the world. Pride, preservation, and pleasure. Those three are things that move the world. And so the world is doing things, the things that it's doing are because of pride, preservation, and pleasure. And these things relate, or they relate to the benefit of my physical life. So they're very physical oriented, they're very materially oriented, they're very this life oriented. I'm not going to say any more about them, I'm just going to give them to you. Pressures that move the church, pain, persecution, and perseverance. Now, in Hebrews 11, it says of Moses that he chose affliction with the people of God over the pleasure of sin. And the scripture carries that idea that the people of God choose a way that is painful because of their faith. Why? Why do they choose that? What well, goes on to say in the next verse about Moses? Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. The reproach of Christ is the humility of Christ, the humbling of himself, to do what he did here while he was here, to come here and to do what he did while he was here. He was reproached. He was a man who was reproached while he was here. And Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ, the humility of Christ, greater riches than the treasure in Egypt. And Egypt is significant of the present world, the value of the present world and sin. Because he valued what was beyond. Now I want to say at the beginning, and I want to get to this, but I gave you pain, I gave you pain, persecution, and perseverance, but there is an underlying, there is an underlying motivator in the Christian experience that we're going to get to at the end of the message. So don't jump beyond where we're at and say, well, what about the love of Christ? Because we're going to get there, okay? So this could be seen, you know, pain persecution and perseverance they could that could be a depressing subject this morning couldn't it but i want us to think about a lady who wrote a poem her name's annie johnson flint 
She was orphaned as a young child, lost her adoptive parents in her 20s, lost her dream of being a musician when arthritis made her bedfast by her early 30s. So if you're in your early 30s or over, if you were Annie Johnson Flint, you would be bedfast. Not only was she bedfast, but her body was covered with bed sores. And so she suffered tremendously. Her body was racked with this pain. But she was known by her friends as a hopeful, encouraging, joy-filled person. How could she be that when her life's experience was so filled with pain? And she wrote these words, and listen carefully. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed or the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father both thee and thy load will upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his, of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. In your pain, is that the God that you know? A God who giveth more grace and more strength. He addeth his mercy. He multiplies his peace. When we reach the end of our resources, the things, our strength, and what we can do, have you experienced that he, his giving has only begun in your life? Have you leaned hard on his arms everlasting availing and felt him upbear you in your struggle? His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus he giveth and giveth and giveth again. What can a God who created the universe that we live in, what can he give? He can give a whole lot more than we can comprehend. Are you trusting? Who, are you, who or what are you trusting in your pain? And who, are you, who and what are you trusting for the future? Would Annie Johnson Flint have penned those powerful God-honoring words had the tragedies of loss not occurred in her life? She could have had reason. She could have, by reason, been bitter and shrunk back into herself because of her pain and her loss. And how many... Do you think she not saw the people around her who did not have arthritis, who were able to sing and play music, who were able, who, who had parents, who had not lost their parents, not lost their parents, but not lost their adoptive parents. Could she not have looked around her and seen so many people that had so much more than her, but instead of shrinking back into herself, into self-pity, and into, she turned her eyes in the right direction. She learned to know a God that changed her life from one of misery to one of joy and encouragement of others. Is God those things that she wrote about? Is He really those things in your life? Do you believe that He is? Have you learned to know a God like that? The God she knew. 
So let's talk now about pain, persecution, and perseverance. I want to address the first two briefly, and then I want to look closer at the last one. Pain is the foundation of the power of both persecution and perseverance. And so when we're looking at persecution and perseverance, pain is the moving force. Pain is the pusher, if you will. So we need to understand pain. Pain is a result of the fall. The condition of a world that is broken by sin. The reason there's pain in the world is because sin entered the world. And death by sin. And so death passed on all men because all have sinned. And so pain is in the world. And the world is not like it was meant to be. All people will experience pain. And pain is both a blessing and a curse. It's a curse because we're not originally created for it. Created to experience it. And so we tend to shrink back from it. It's repulsive to us. We don't want to experience pain. It's a blessing because it tells us when things are not right. And the fact that there's pain in the world tells us that there's things in the world that aren't right. There's things in the world that need to be made right. And if it weren't for pain, how would we determine that things needed to be made right in our world? So it's valuable because it brings the presence of reality into focus. This is the way life really is. There's pain in life. And you don't have to look far to see it if you haven't experienced it yourself. In fact, research says that there's almost a 100% chance that you or someone very close to you will suffer tremendously at some point within your lifetime. Pain is real, and it's in our world. In the book of Job, Satan is involved in bringing pain into Job's life. Do you know what his purpose was? He wanted Job to curse God. Satan was involved in bringing pain. And his goal with pain is to get people to curse God. Or to blame God for the circumstance. God, on the other hand, has allowed pain as a corrective force. His purpose in pain is always redemptive. But pain brings us to a point of decision. Even more than pleasure does. When we're in pain, what are we going to do with that pain? When we're suffering, what are we going to do about the suffering? It brings us to a point of decision. It brought Job to a point of decision. It brought Annie Johnson Flint to that point. And it will bring you and I to that point as well. Will I act according to how I feel? Or will I act according to how God wants me to act? That's the decision that you're going to be faced with when you're faced with pain. And that choice is vital to both love and spiritual life. The decision you make on the basis of that choice, when you're faced with pain and you have nowhere to turn, 
You can turn either to your feelings or you can turn to God. And the difference between that choice will be vital to the direction you go spiritually. It's going to also be vital to how your love is expanded in the world. Both your love for others and your experience of love. So what is persecution? Persecution is pain inflicted by others with the motivation of destroying faith. That's a pretty general description of what persecution is. But I want you to think back through history, what you know about history. When has the church been powerful? It's been when it was persecuted. We look back at the times when the church was persecuted, and we see times when the church was powerful. And here's what Tertullian said in relation to that, and some of this you probably have heard before. We are not a philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You merely prove our innocence. Sorry. You praise those who endure pain and death so long as they aren't Christians. Your cruelties merely prove our innocence of the crimes you charge against us. And you frustrate your purpose because those who see us die, we do. For we die like the men you revere. And when they find out, they join us. So the idea there is that when people observed Christians suffering, they didn't suffer and die as people who were condemned criminals. They suffered and died as heroes. With that kind of a countenance in their lives. And just to give you one illustration of that, in the late 200s, um, there was a lady named Perpetua who was in instruction class, put in prison, and then she was thrown to the beasts. And she was to be mauled by a heifer was her, was her lot in the Colosseum. And when the, when the animal struck her the first time, it knocked her down, and it knocked her hair down. Well, in their time, hair being down was a sign of money. And her concern was not for her life or to escape the heifer. Her concern was to get her hair back up because she didn't want to die in mourning. She wanted to die in rejoicing. See, that's the death of a hero. And when people saw that, they said, how do these people do this? And they came to know Jesus Christ, and then the church was multiplied. A willingness to calmly, even joyfully, accept pain and death because of divine revelation. It wasn't because they were a philosophy, but rather because they had met God and learned to know Him. And they were willing to go through pain, suffering, and death because of that. And then the church presented something pure and powerful to the world around it. So there's another question, and I don't have time to get into this one a lot, but it's the question about physical ailments, natural disasters, and accidental circumstances. Are they persecution? Before you say no, suffice to say this. If we did not know the backstory of Job, 
of the book of Job. If we did not know that backstory, if we only saw what happened on the surface, we would ascribe a lot of the events that happened to him as natural disasters, disease, and just theft, which could happen to anybody. Now, I'm not saying that all sickness and circumstances that we face that are painful are persecution. But what I am saying is that the possibility exists that there's a backstory of what Satan is trying to do to disrupt, to bring about a disclaimer or a rejection of God, a blaming of God or an accusation of God because of the things that happen to us in the natural world. But there's a question that remains, whether it is or whether it's not, there's something that remains, and it's the fact that all people experience pain. And so my response as a follower of Jesus is critical to a demonstration of what Jesus is doing in my life. Why look to God? Why lean on Him? Why trust His provision? Why or why focus on myself and my pursuit of a path around the pain. So what will I focus on when I experience pain is going to make a lot of difference in how I display Christ working in me. Second Timothy 3 verse 12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, the two words there, that will, mean to be resolved or to purpose. All that will, all that are resolved and have purposed to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So how will we be a powerful church in an age where there is no blatant persecution and where there's plenty for us to insulate ourselves from pain. How will we be a powerful church? Will we be persecuted? Have we willed, have we purposed to live godly in Christ Jesus? Hebrews 12, 3, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. The word in verse 4 there of Hebrews 12, resist, means to set troops against. So you've gone out to battle. Ye have not yet gone out to battle unto blood until you're bleeding. Striving against sin, fighting against. You're in a warfare. That's where I want to bring in the idea of perseverance. A pursuit of God that takes us into pain.
The way of the cross is a way of pain. And I'll just say this before I talk about perseverance. I'm not talking about perseverance in the Calvinistic sense, okay? I'm using perseverance in the sense of pursuit, determined, committed pursuit, perseverance. The way of the cross is the way of pain. We tend to think about the cross as being this beautiful thing. But the cross is really a very ugly thing. As a means of horrible, horrible death. And Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And to take up is something that you choose to do. It's telling you that you are to take up your cross and follow Him. You're to take up that instrument of destruction to your flesh and follow what Jesus did. What all is entailed with that? I'd like to use 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness, which of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those of you who taught Sunday school this morning probably recognize the similarity of this passage at least the latter part of this passage, to the text that we looked at this morning. Contending for faith. Here it's talking about giving diligence. I want to talk just a little bit about knowledge, because in the first couple of verses it talks about that all these promises are given us through the knowledge of Christ. And this knowledge begins in John 17, 3, knowledge. John 17, 3, knowledge is a knowing, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. So it begins with that. And then this knowledge here in verse 3 is a precise and correct knowledge. It's like a, an understanding of who he is. And so you learn to know him in a relationship. And then in, here in this passage in verse 3 that all these promises come to it, to us, they come to us through an understanding, a correct understanding of who Jesus is. And so we learn to know him, and then we start learning to know who he really is. 
And then all these promises are available to us. Everything that we need to pertains to life and godliness. That knowledge is used in verses 2, 3, and 8. That precise and correct knowledge. There's a different kind of knowledge in verse 6. And that's like a moral wisdom. So an understanding of right and wrong. But I want you to catch the idea that grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So we're talking about grace in the earlier part, talking about Annie Johnson Flint and grace coming to us from our Lord. Grace and peace be multiplied, initiated through the John 3, multiplied through this passage in 1 Peter, and then continued at least in part through what's in the knowledge that's in verse 6. Knowing God did not remove Annie Johnson Flint's pain. But in knowing God, she found an answer to her pain. And by finding Him, she entered into the pain of others. And so the words that she wrote minister to people who are suffering she entered into their pain because of the pain she experienced. And then in verse 5 it says, giving all diligence. And this is where I'm getting the idea of perseverance. So we have all these promises and we, have this, uh, we need to have this knowledge of Christ, this growing knowledge of Christ. And these promises that are available to us. And then... Peter says, give all diligence, add. Add what? Add to your faith, which that's your faith. Add to your faith virtue, doing what is right, moral goodness. And to that, add knowledge, factual knowledge, that is reading the word, seeking accurate truth. And to that, add temperance, self-control. Factual knowledge does not benefit unless it changes our choices. And so it doesn't matter how much truth you know, if you're not willing to do, if you're not able to control yourself to do what you know you ought to do, the knowledge of truth doesn't do you any good. To temperance add patience, cheerful, hopeful endurance, steadfast perseverance, godliness, respect toward God, holiness, and add to that brotherly kindness. That's Philadelphia. Brotherly love, cherishing and valuing relationships, and add to this charity. That's agape love, self-sacrificing love for others. And then verse 8, if these things be in you, if those things are what's happening in your life, if they be in you and abound and they're growing, then you will be able to reproduce and be producing seed in the knowledge of Jesus. You'll be creating fruit. Fruit will be happening in your life. You'll neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus, which is the answer to pain. So there's a cycle happening here. Therefore, give diligence, persevere in taking up your cross, which is your calling. It will bring you confidence of faith 
and guard you from failure. That's in verse 10. Verse 11, and so you will, you will continually be entering the kingdom of grace and peace. So there will be continual revolution of faith building, fruit producing life that's happening in you. If those things be in you and abound. For if you do these things, you will never fall. But I'd like to go back to the conclusion. There was a progression in, those, in that list. There is, a, there is a progression in that list that leads you to brotherly kindness and charity. And I want to go back to the end of that. Brotherly kindness and charity. Why exactly did Jesus take up his cross? To answer that question, we need to go back a couple pages to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Did Jesus sin? No. He suffered for sin. Right? That's what this verse says. Christ also hath once suffered for sins. Jesus suffered for sins. The just, the one who had not sinned, for those who had sinned, the just for the unjust. He did not suffer because of his sin. He, just, he suffered because of your sin and my sin. What did he say about his life? He said, I lay it down. Jesus entered the world and humbled himself and suffered for sins that he did not commit voluntarily because of what? That he might bring us to God. There's a lot of suffering out there in the world. Are you willing to enter into that suffering? That's what Jesus did. That's why Jesus took up the cross. And what did Jesus say? Take up your cross and follow me. Are you willing to suffer for other people's sin? Now, I'm not saying that we can give people salvation in the same sense that Jesus could. But are you willing to engage with the pain that's a result of other people's sin in a way that's redemptive, that can bring them to God? Are you willing to put to death your own life, the life that you want and you dream about, the ideal that you have for this life, this current present life, are you willing to put that to death to enter into the lives of other people to bring them to redemption. Because in Christ we see a willingness to enter into the, to our pain to bear that pain for us. That we can... And so, now look at 1 Peter chapter 4 
context of chapter 3, verse 18. Forasmuch then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. We're to have the same mindset that Christ had when he went to the cross and suffered for us. We're to have that mind that we're going to suffer for Christ. Now Jesus could have escaped the cross. And that's one of the aspects of this idea of virtue, is the idea that you have the capacity to do something different, but you choose not to because what you choose to do is the right thing to do. So it's not particularly a virtue if you can't get out of it. But if you could get out of it and you don't because the right thing to do is not to, then it's a virtue. I talk about this a lot. Not this subject, but what I'm getting ready to tell you. Because it is the crux of what it means to be a Christian and why we're here. Christ's call to take up our cross is about discipleship. It's about following him and helping other people to come to know and follow him. And when we do that, we enter into the pain of other people. I'm out of time, practically out of time. Dana and I had an experience recently in which we tried to help someone and the end result was that, well, not the end result, still ongoing, but part of the result was that we got cussed out for trying to help. And they're still calling us for help. And it's not because of the choices that we made in the sense of sin. It's because we decided that we were willing to get involved. Because we believe that it's important to take discipleship seriously and to reach out to people. And I'm not saying that to lift myself up I'm simply, or us up. I'm simply saying that because it's what happens. When you enter into the lives of people who are hurting, who have sinned, who have done wrong, you're going to experience pain. You're going to experience their pain. You're going to learn to love them. Not only are you going to learn to love them, but when they hurt, when, when a loved one hurts, you hurt. And when, so, so when you see somebody that you love making poor choices, it hurts. And what did Jesus do? He took up his cross for our redemption offering us a way to be free, and he calls us to do the same. So what does it do when we enter into the lives of other people? It forces us to articulate our faith. Follow, if you probably didn't catch all those, but add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. What was that in verse 
uh, verses 5 through 7. So I'm going to take you on this progression of what happens when you get involved in other people's lives. It forces you to articulate your faith. It's faith. You enter into the pain of others to bring redemption to their life. Oh, sorry. Wrong thing. You choose to help when we could do otherwise. That's virtue. You have to learn to understand and resolve problems. That's knowledge. Not get caught, you can't get caught in the failures of others. That's self-control or temperance. You have patience with the bad choices. And you become a better example. You're kind to the less fortunate. And you come to love them. And that's what happens when you get involved in the lives of other people. And so, that progression, that perseverance, perseverance in getting involved in the lives of other people as a follower of Jesus is key to us being a powerful church for the future. Now, I want to go back to the foundation. I told you we'd go there. The last message that... Daniel Miller preached here before he went to Jordan was titled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he talked about, I think it was a corn silker. As he used that as an illustration. He said you had to take the ears of corn and you pushed them through these brushes. I'm just using his description, so if I'm way off, I'm sorry. Um, but you push these things through, and then when you push the next ear through, it expelled the first ear out of the silker. And he used that as an illustration to talk about how when we come to know and love God, there is a, a power, a love that comes into our life that expels our love for other things. And at the heart of all of this, the reason why we persevere in our Christian experience must be because we have that expulsive power actively involved in our lives. And that expels the other things that we would be doing that don't align themselves with following Jesus. And take I want to tell you something, folks. I'm preaching to me this morning. Because it's something that I need. And by the grace of God, I hope it was an encouragement to you. Shall we have a song?